0: In this episode, I discuss the E.E. British Academy Film Awards with critic Anna Dillon, and I take a look at two new releases with fascinating female leads. Here's Black Bear star Aubrey Plaza on the way female characters are
1: described in scripts. I've read a script where there was a role and the, the character was written as just you know, this kind of slutty, promiscuous, like wild, you know, woman with no brains and just physically described as like, you know, big tits and there was no substance at all. It was just like, what am I reading?
0: I'm also joined by I Blame Society director Gillian Wallace Horvath in a jam packed episode of Girls on Film. Fasten your seat belts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm gonna get that gun of mine, and I'm gonna change you from a rooster to a hand with one shot.
2: Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at
1: five every morning working my ass off. Does someone wanna just tell me to my face, you're never gonna give me the scores I deserve?
0: Hi there, I'm your host, Anna Smith, and today we're discussing deranged directors and complex female characters in a dark comedy double bill. This episode is in partnership with the Cognac House, Remé Martin. They'll be attending the annual Cognac show at the weekend. This two-day virtual celebration of Cognac includes tasting sessions and masterclasses with the makers. So before I welcome my guests, I'm raising a glass to Cognac in the movies. Cognac is actually one of my favourite drinks and I'm always tickled to see it pop up on screen in some rather glamorous places. So here's my top three. First up, a female icon, Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly in 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's. She serves a Mississippi punch, which is a mix of cognac, bourbon and rum, at one of her infamous soirees, which features fabulous hats, a lot of fun and a ginger cat.
2: Now I've got a wonderful idea. We could spend the whole day doing things we've never done before. We'll take turns for something you've never done then me. Of course, I can't really think of anything I've never done.
0: Next up, 1988's female-focused weepy, Beaches. The singer Cece, played by the great Bette Midler, twice orders her favourite drink, the Stinger, made with cognac and white creme de menthe.
3: I know it's not buckingham palace but it's home to me no, you don't understand i'm crying because i'm happy it just hit me that i'm free you don't know what it's been like for me my father controlled everything i did even down to the kind of law i practiced and now for the first time in my life i'm doing exactly
2: what i want to do rather than what i've been trained to do i feel like shouting free at last Free at last, thank God almighty, I'm free at last.
0: Finally, the impossibly cool Juliette Binoche plays cognac-loving actress Maria in Clouds of sills Maria, an art-house gem from 2014, co-starring Kristen Stewart.
1: Well, she's got a great presence, but I don't see what's so daring about it. Despite her superpowers, <laughs>
2: Her superpowers. Her superpowers. Yes, her superpowers. So what? It's a convention, but it's no dumber than any other convention. Cheers. Now time to talk film awards
0: with my first guest, film and TV critic, Rihanna Dillon. Well, Rihanna, welcome back to Girls on Film. Thank you so much for having me. Always love being on. Oh, well, we absolutely love having you. And today's a special day because not only is it the day after the BAFTAs, but it is also the 12th of April, and something's happened today that ties into what I've just been saying. Because I've just been talking about ordering cocktails at a bar. And where have you just been, Rihanna? <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you're dobbing me in at my local pub,
3: which is very exciting.
0: There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I'm very jealous and I'm going <laughs> I'm going later to a pub myself. Um, so yeah, was it everything you dreamed of?
3: It was weird, wasn't it? Because this morning, because I'm in Kent, it was snowing and we were like, oh, well, absolutely no way can we get to the pub later. And then brightened up a bit and then it was really hot sunshine, genuinely. So what a, what a perfect afternoon for it. It was everyone was in such a good mood as well everyone was smiling it was great
0: oh it's nice so for our foreign listeners they've just reopened the pub so you can sit in the garden so it's very exciting for us so yay brilliant okay um well you know what you deserve a drink because you worked very hard this weekend i saw you on the ebafter show on saturday on tv how was that experience you did great by the way Thank
3: you so much. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. They really kind of took care of me. But also it was just such a pleasure to be able to talk about the Craft Awards because they're so often, I think, an afterthought in in ceremonies like the BAFTAs or the Oscars. It's like a sort of also this lot received, and you just get, like, tiny little clips. Whereas to have a whole show just dedicated to the crafts, explaining what they are, we had Joanna Scanlon on the show, who is a, like, BAFTA-nominated actress she's and writer and producer. She's been in loads. She's going to be in After Love coming out quite soon, which...
0: Very excited about that film. film. Yeah. yeah,
3: and it's it's great, and she's fantastic. She brought so many, like, fun anecdotes with from an actor's perspective, which was really nice, and Clara just sort of held it all together perfectly. And then Noel Clarke came on and did this incredibly powerful, kind of gut-wrenching speech, which left us all in tears, to be honest. But it was, yeah, it
0: was a really fun night. Are there any particular wins, either from that night or the subsequent night on the Sunday, that you're extremely happy about?
3: I think from the craft night, it was really, you know, it couldn't really have gone to anyone else, but... Sound design going to Sound of Metal was really, really great. Where you know we were all cheering that. I think that was fantastic. It, the amount of dedication. I think the sound engineers came on like a, a year before filming even began. That's just sort of how much they they were going to win that <laughs> award. They were determined. Um, and then I guess from the main show, seeing Bookie Backrow win E Rising Star. Um, I voted for her. So I was really pleased about that. Promising Young Woman, I've been rooting for for a really long time because I saw it before the first lockdown over a year ago oh, wow. now, actually in a cinema. So to ha- kind of have to have, like sat on that for a year has been really strange. Now that it's finally coming out, people are, are able to see it and the, the buzz around it is really great. I've 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 just loved seeing how much it's being celebrated. I've seen some really interesting criticism around it as well, not stuff that I necessarily agreed with, but it gave me a completely different perspective on it and I I kind of made me realize just how important it is to always read criticism around stuff, even if you love it to bits. And it, you know, it's not about changing your mind, but just kind of being aware of other people's opinions and perspectives.
1: My assistant tells me that you're interested in resuming med school. I left
2: under unusual circumstances. You remember the accusations made against Alexander Monroe?
1: I don't.
2: He took a girl back to his room.
1: You know, we get accusations like this All the time So it's a he said, she said situation What would you have me do? Ruin a young man's life
0: Well, there is so much to unpack on that film and that's why in our recent episode we got not only a critic on but an activist who talked about the intersectional feminism aspect and also a former police chief to talk about the very topical aspects. So, But I think we're going to continue talking about that film because there is so much to speak about. But, yeah, I I was thrilled to see wins for that. Also, uh, as you say, Buki, who um, we recently had on our E.E. Rising Star episode along with Morvid Clark and she...
3: And Morphe is also fantastic. I mean, it was a really—it's always a really strong category, and it was again this year.
0: Any one of them would have been fantastic winners. All absolutely brilliant. It was one of those BAFTAs actually where I didn't feel any of the nominees were out of place, and I have to say last year I thought a lot of the winners were out of place, and I wouldn't (laughs) have—I wouldn't even nominated them. So I think it's a real about turn, Um, and I thought it was a fantastic ceremony and. Also, um, Pippa Ehrlich for My Octopus Teacher. She's a recent guest and that's a big, big favourite, I think, with a lot of our listeners. Um, But, of course, four wins for Nomadland. Tell me your thoughts on Nomadland.
3: I really enjoyed Nomadland. It's funny because it's not got, for me, it's not like a film that I necessarily am going to go back to over and over again. But I really admired the way that Chloe Zhao kind of took this idea and made it so her own and so unusual and so... I, I mean, it's really exciting. I think for Chloe Zhao to be to be demonstrating so many different strengths, the fact that she's going to do the Marvels, the Eternals next for Marvel is just, like, wild. And we don't often see women getting these sorts of opportunities. I think in previous, you know, even, like, kind of a few years ago, if Chloe Zhao had made that film, I think she would have been very much seen as an indie filmmaker. Do you know what I mean? It kind of has that feel to it because it doesn't feel like it's got a huge budget, even though it has, you know, Frances McDormand. She is also quite well known for doing interesting, not necessarily kind of um, big Hollywood lead roles, I suppose. So yeah, that was just, it was a real, real pleasure to see her win. It's so well deserved. It's experimental. It's beautiful. It tells a story that we don't necessarily know about this kind of community in the West of America post-recession. It's very niche. It's very specific. And that's what I really like. It's not something that we would have heard about before, especially over here.
0: Yeah, it does have an incredible sense of atmosphere and it does take you on the road with her. And How fantastic to see a film directed by a woman of colour about a woman over 50 years of of age, you know, and (laughs) and that's winning everything. Hooray, you know, (laughs) fantastic. And it's also really good. And and as you say, it doesn't follow a Hollywood kind of pace. It doesn't have a Hollywood kind of ending, but it's all the more, I think, profound for its sort of quiet moments and those moments of reflection. And it has a lot to say about community, which feels
3: very topical. I suppose the comment on capitalism as well, I think in a year where... I don't know about you. I have sort of turned to like online shopping so much just to get like those dopamine hits, which is actually why before <laughs> I went to the pub today, I went to shopping.
0: <laughs> what I did you need, buy? I bought this jumper. <laughs> very nice. Um, <laughs> listeners, it's a very nice yellow shade. Suits you beautifully. Nice pale
3: yellow. Yeah, jacket, dress. And, and I guess watching, watching Nomadland, it was kind of, it sort of made me think, oh, I need to take a, a bit more control over what I actually do spend my money on why am I spending this money what is this for and I think it does that in not at all a preachy way it sort of lets you come to your own conclusions there
0: as well yes that's a really good point that has been mentioned I think Mia Bays was talking about that on our sort of review of the year and how we're all thinking more about um you know being socially conscious and where we put our money and what we buy but also not just you know Consumer goods, you know, physical things, but films. How we consume our films, where we buy them from, when we watch them at home. So, all really interesting and relevant stuff. Do you think *Nomadland* is going to go all the way to the Oscars and win there?
3: I, I think it. I think it might. I think everyone is so rooting for Chloe Zhao. Actually, it's like you know, after, after so long, after such a dearth of female filmmakers being awarded, celebrated, and Also, any sort of directors of colour and, oh, I don't know. I just feel like it absolutely feels not just about time, but just the fact that No Man Land does try and do something and say something different. As much as I love The Father, I do think that's a phenomenal film and that, like, you know, the more I think about it, the more spectacular I, I genuinely think it is. But equally, in the same way that I was maybe slightly disappointed that Anthony Hopkins got the BAFTA for Best Actor, I do feel like it's not. The time to be necessarily giving those sorts of films the highest accolades when you have stories like Nomad Land or even Judas and the Black Messiah, which is perhaps again more traditional um, just in its approach, but is it's saying so much. Mank, it's an incredible achievement. I think David Fincher is, you know, as we all think, is a pretty good filmmaker. But again, it's it's not necessarily something out of the ordinary. It's He's very well known. Of course, he was going to make a lot of money. It's got an Oscar-winning actor at the center of it as well. But it's, I think, Nomadland just has just has that edge, perhaps, but particularly with critics and voters.
0: Yeah, it feels like finally a lot of voters are coming along to perhaps what critics and other, you know, lots of kind of liberal types have been saying for a while. It's like (laughs) you've got to sort it out, Academy. You know, you've got to be more diverse. And finally, I feel like the tide is, as you suggested, the tide is kind of moving that way, um, which is exciting. And, of course, two women nominated for Best Director there. I think Chloe Zhao could take it. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I really do. I think even from, like, the very beginning, I think it is the directing that you you look to with that film um that's kind of shouts the loudest almost but in quite a subtle way so with Promising Young Woman I think that might be a bit too divisive somehow even though it's you know post Me Too and obviously that will be at the front of everybody's minds when they're voting um I just think that Nomadland because it was so kind of unexpected and but still still ticks those Academy boxes with the likes of Frances McDormand, I think she might get it.
0: I think it's a good shout because, and also for Best Picture, you're looking at something that everybody loves and parasite was that and, and it, before that it's actually been kind of more slightly mediocre things like green book that everybody's quite loved um but uh, yeah. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah. that, apart better. from <laughs> Rihanna you should just see her face <laughs> listeners um but but yeah so what, what I'm saying is I was excited about parasite and it shows how brilliant it was the fact that everybody loved that but yet it was quite edgy promising young woman is quite edgy so I just think it might split the vote as just a little bit in places Nomadland even though it's less traditional, it still has that kind of heart and it's also based on a true story and it stars a frequent Oscar contender and winner, Frances McDormand. So, and it also has the modernity of being directed by a woman of colour. And, yeah, so, yeah, go, go Nomadland. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. And many, other, and many other things on that list, quite frankly, yeah, I, I actually love all the films. On the best picture list. It Fantastic.
3: Has, it yeah. has been such a strong year. This is what I keep saying. And it is quite frustrating, isn't it, when you sort of hear people who sort of say, oh, it's not been a great year for film. And you're like, are you joking? It's been such a good year. And the fact that we're not having to... Thinking about, like, the award ceremony last year with all of, like, with Tarantino and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and all of these huge um old... Names that we've kind of hear again and again. It's just been so refreshing to have a film award ceremony that reflects the sorts of films that I've actually been watching and enjoying that have spoken to me and have been doing and saying something different and have been teaching me things as opposed to just being sort of luscious to watch, which of course there is plenty of those there, and that is absolutely a valid form of film and entertainment, but it, it genuinely has been a pleasure to see some some films that might have been outliers in other years.
1: Welcome to Badlands Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Fern! You gotta make
2: the hole bigger. The
1: yeah. I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's
2: gonna come go right through the
1: glass. My dad used to say, What's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering.
0: Well, it has been a good year for film. Whenever people say that to me that it hasn't, I say, listen to my podcast, (laughs) because we're covering them all. (laughs) Listen to our podcast, because the girls on film have got it sus. 100%. And Any other Oscar things you wanted to highlight?
3: One thing that's kind of struck me is that I, I feel like I can't really call the lead actor and actress categories because I do think they are all so strong I don't know about you were you like were you surprised when Frances McDormand took it last night I wasn't but
0: I mean I felt like any of them could I mean I thought you know maybe Vanessa Kirby for pieces of the woman could have taken it easily and there's been such a huge buzz for her um but it felt like for a long time no Madeline was just leading the charge with everything so I wasn't particularly and of course her performance is amazing yes but yeah, any one of those women. And the same goes for the actors, you know? Yeah.
3: I was I was genuinely surprised about Anthony Hopkins because I think, as again, as much as it's a phenomenal performance, I don't ever want to detract from that because I think he is excellent in that film. But there was a bit of me that was like, actually, Riz Ahmed, that would have meant so much to Riz Ahmed, who's been working incredibly hard the past few years to really um, kind of push forward different stories and... You know, The Sound of Metal is not a film that we have seen before. And his performance in that is spectacular, as well as Mogul Mowgli. It just felt such a shame that he didn't get that chance. I mean, of course, you know, an honour to be nominated, but that accolade, I just think, should have gone to him, really. Well, maybe he'll take home an Oscar. We'll (laughs) see. (laughs) Maybe. Against Chadwick
0: Boseman, though, in the Oscars. Yeah, I don't think so. That's a really, really tough one to beat, um, and understandably so. Now, listen, my next guest um, is a fantastic actress, and I want to know if you're a fan. I'm hoping you are, because otherwise it'd be quite awkward. <laughs> um, you can leave before she arrives, but are you a fan of Aubrey Plaza?
3: Oh, my God, I love Aubrey Plaza. That's really weird, actually. I just watched um, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, because I hadn't seen it before, and I was like, but Aubrey's in it. Like, who cares if the rest of it's not great? She's amazing. And... Uh, Happiest Season, I've got to say, is one of my, now my new favourite Christmas movies. Um, Just for like the spark between her and Kristen Stewart. So sexy and she wears so many incredible blazers in that film. I just love her.
0: She is absolutely brilliant in that film, in everything, I agree. But yeah, I mean, she's now got a huge lesbian fan base, I think. And lots of people who, who <laughs> yes. without spoilers, uh, feel that the story should have gone in a different direction, I would say. Absolutely, yeah, really. I agree. I 100% agree. That was a much healthier relationship than <laughs> the one that actually ended up kind of happening. It's still a great fun film, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is not it Yeah, It was so nice to see a different Christmas film. Yes. Um, but, but, yeah, still had that warm, cosy feeling. So um, so we're going to speak to Aubrey Plaza in a minute. But meantime, Rihanna, thank you so much for joining Girls on Film again. Is there anything about your work you'd like to flag up to the listeners? Anything um, you want
3: to? Is there anything I'm doing? I'm going to start a new Biffa podcast very soon. So do keep an eye out or an ear out for that. I'm on um, Six Music every Monday morning with Lauren Laverne. So uh, I talk about film, streaming, TV in that slot. So, yeah, just have a listen.
0: Thanks. <laughs> well, I always enjoy listening to you. Thank you for joining Girls on Film. Take Cheers, care, Anna. Bye. That was Rihanna Dillon. As mentioned, my next guest is Aubrey Plaza, who's known for her performances in Happiest Season, Parks and Recreation, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Safety Not Guaranteed, and Ingrid Goes West. Her latest film is The Dark Comedy Black Bear. Written and directed by Lawrence Michael Levine, this surreal relationship drama stars Aubrey as an actress shooting a film in a remote location. But there's a lot more going on in this film, as we will discuss. Well, Aubrey, welcome to Girls on
1: Film. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Parks and Recreation, Safety Not Guaranteed, Dinger Goes West, Happiest Season, Now Black Bear, which is just an insane film, but I was absolutely riveted kind of disturbing, uncomfortable, tripping, amazing.
1: I figured if um, I never learned how to cook, then I would never become a housewife. You're really hard to read. Yeah, you know what? I get that all the time. Do you find it weird acting in your own films? I actually find it kind of humiliating.
0: What persuaded you to make this film?
1: Well, there were so many things that came up for me when I read the script, and... Larry Levine, the the writer, director, had kind of written it inspired by me and inspired by some of the conversations that we had had about how complicated it is to make films with your intimate partner. So there's just a lot of things about this movie that were very familiar to me, things that I felt like at the time I would I wanted to explore and to kind of work out in a way. And I also just Loved the script. It's a beautifully written script. There was practically no improv in the film, which I think comes as a surprise to a lot of people. It was written almost like a play. And I've never gotten to do a play yet uh, professionally, but it's something that I've always wanted to do. And so it was like checking off a lot of boxes for me. Although it was terrifying, of course, when I read it, because I'm like, this is very scary. And I don't know if I can do this. But I think I'm always naturally. Drawn to things that are scary,
0: a lot of the best actors say exactly that you know you've got to embrace what is terrifying, I guess. um now you also produced this, didn't you? Why did you decide to do that
1: i I think it was just like a natural move. I think Larry wanted me to produce when he gave it to me and or or at least that's what he said, and was kind of like would love you to come on as a producer i The movie is such an artistic film, it's not an obvious marketable, you know, commercial movie. So I knew that getting money and getting financing was going to be quite tough because people don't want to spend money on such small, small movies. So I think I just, as a, yeah, I think there were two, two reasons. One, I just wanted to help get the movie made. And I thought as a producer, I could really, you know, get in there and try to throw my weight around as much weight as I have. Um, And then as an artist, I just thought, you know, if I'm going to put myself in this such a vulnerable position, which I felt like the role called for, I wanted to make sure that I was involved in all the decisions that were being made around the film. And I wanted to feel safe and comfortable in terms of just how the set was being run and all those kinds of things. So it just made sense.
0: Well, it's interesting, Ron, because, there's you know, it's a male director and two fascinating, complex lead female roles in there. And I thought it's interesting that it's a male director who tackles feminism arguments head on, but from a kind of almost a guilty perspective, hasn't he? He sort of said that he had a, a long, hard look at his own complicity in the state of affairs. And I thought that was really honest. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how that fed into the film.
1: As much as it was personal for me, I think it was very personal for Larry as well. And I think that these are the conversations that he has with his wife and with his friends. He's very, he's a very, very sensitive guy. He wants to talk about the issues and he wants to talk about the state of things. And he's not someone that takes any of that lightly. So I think it was probably not to speak for him, but probably cathartic for him to kind of put all of those philosophies and all of these kinds of things that are swirling around in his head on onto, the onto film.
0: There's a very painful um, episode in which um, the director character kind of gaslights his actress partner and tries to make her jealous um, in order to get a better performance. Does that kind of stuff really happen?
1: Yes. I mean, thankfully, I don't think it's ever happened to me, at least to to that extreme. Yeah, I think that there's a history of directors, you know, manipulating their their actors to get a performance and gaslighting them or emotionally ver- abusing them. And I think that the film really speaks to that and it's kind of begging the question of at what cost do we make these quote-unquote brilliant films? Is it worth it in the end if you leave an actor just... <laughs> In a puddle on the floor, in their own tears. I mean, what is what? What are we doing? I, so I think it the, it asks that question a lot, and I think I, I believe that the world is slowly changing, and that you know directors aren't getting away with that kind of behavior as much as they maybe used to. And I hope that that continues because I don't feel that. Anyone needs to be gaslit or manipulated to, to have an amazing performance. And I think it's actually the opposite, And that if directors make an actor feel safe and respected, that they're willing to expose themselves more and, and give more. But it's just hard when you're dealing with these directors that have historically been kind of labeled as geniuses, mad geniuses. And unfortunately, the more talented they are, the more they get away with.
0: Do you identify as a feminist?
1: Yeah, absolutely. What does that mean to you? I think for me, it was it was almost just ingrained into my brain since I was young. I went to an all girls school, uh, pr- pretty much my whole life until I went until I was eighteen. So I grew up with very powerful, you know, strong uh, women uh teaching me and um and instilling these kind of values that we are equal in every way and we are we must be treated as such and so i it was not something I ever had to grapple with and I think when I ended up going to new York and then suddenly being in classes with boys and then getting into the comedy scene that is so male dominated and choosing a career path in film that is so male dominated i got a film degree at NYU. And at that time, I think things have changed, but at that time it was very male dominated. And I was just always blown away by just the idea that, yeah, that women were, didn't feel like they could speak up, speak their mind or that they were being re- valued and respected. And so I think that it's it's just who I am. I think I just naturally am, have always kind of carried that with me, whether I was conscious of it or not.
0: Are there t- any sort of turning points in your career that you remember early on where you either turned something down because you were uncomfortable from a gender perspective, or you just kind of pushed back and made it more equal?
1: I don't think I've ever turned anything down. I think that there's like, there've been many instances where I've felt like, where I've read something on the page that I feel like a female character is, is just not being not written well there's no nuance there's no you know it's it's just so kind of cliche and sexist and just there's certain, even just the way scripts are being written have had to change and slowly are changing just even the way that women are described in script form in films and stuff i think that i've had i've had at least one experience i can point to where i've read a script where there was a role and the woman was, the, the character was written as just, you know, this kind of slutty, promiscuous, like wild, you know, woman with no brains and just physically described as like, you know, big tits. And there was no substance at all. It was just like, what am I reading? And I decided to audition for the part really mainly just to to go like, you know, there are all kinds of women out there. And anyway, there have been instances in my life where I feel like, I've made a choice to go like no, I'm going to actually show these people that you know, this character even though her motivation is just to have sex with this older man, it doesn't mean that, that that's not all that's going on with her and in fact, she's very smart and she's, you know, got a PhD and she's whatever, but she can also just be crazy and 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 fun and promiscuous too. It's like, yeah. We can do it all. So I think that there have been moments when I felt like I've had my own victories in that way, but but I don't think I've ever turned anything down because of that yet.
0: That makes perfect sense looking at your roles. I feel that like you always make them your own. I mean, obviously a lot of our listeners will know you from Parks and Recreation in the first instance. Is that
1: something that's still very close to your heart? Absolutely. I love. I loved every minute of being on that show and I loved everyone involved. And it was one of the first things I ever got professionally. And I think it was the first project that I was in that people saw me in. So I don't watch it, but it feels like I grew up on that show or something. I became like a woman on that show, which is like so cheesy to say, but I do feel that way. I feel like I started off kind of like, you know, I was like 22, 23. And then by the end of it, I like had a baby and I was married and um, it was like my mini life that I lived. <laughs> and, uh, but it's like, it doesn't go away. For some reason, it's just, it still affects people and I still hear about it and everyone in the cast, we're still talking and we still are like a family. So it's—it that show has a very special spirit that kind of like lives on. But until then, I will work to make Pawnee, my wonderful hometown, as good as it can be. What do you think? I think you should lose the first line, and the last line, and all of the other lines, and instead just walk up to the mic and meow really loudly for eight minutes. Okay. So you're from Mongolia? Team. Will you take me with you when you go back there? Uh, oui. I love you. Mm. Did you understand that?
0: Did you bring any wolverines? When you say you don't watch it, do you generally not watch yourself?
1: Or are you just too busy? I don't. I don't really watch myself. I'd rather do anything else than watch myself. (laughs) But it's funny because I was shooting, I was recently shooting in Turkey and I barely turned my television on. Most of it was all Turkish channels anyway. But I found that there was one uh, channel called the Comedy Channel and I would switch to it sometimes and go like, well, maybe there's something on there. And they were always playing Parks and Rec. And I'm like, the one, I was like, this is the one thing I don't want to watch is myself. I was like, if they could just air any other show, it'd be great. I'm just trying to like escape from myself. But even in Turkey, I was like, oh my God, there I am. Ah." Um, (laughs) that's But there could be worse, worse things in life that could happen to you.
0: Do you feel like, uh, with Black Bear, obviously it's comedic and it is very, very funny, but do you feel that's taking you into a slightly different, more dramatic area, obviously having been very known for comedy?
1: I mean, I hope so. It's hard for me to have perspective on what area I'm going in or what people think that I can do or not do. And all I can do is just keep moving forward and picking roles for the right reasons. And I try not to get too wrapped up in the career move Part of it all, but I definitely am not ashamed to say that I do have this like urge to prove myself to people, and you know, just because I was so heavily associated with my comedy roles and these kinds of characters in the past, that I think I've always had this like slight chip on my shoulder where I'm like, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more to me, you know, than than you know, everybody. Um. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen.
0: That seems to be working.
1: (laughs) What were you filming in Turkey? I was filming a Guy Ritchie movie called the Untitled Guy Ritchie Movie, um, starring Jason Statham and me and Hugh Grant and Carrie Elwes and Josh Hartnett. And it was like an action spy comedy. And what a time.
0: Tell me more, because that also sounds rather different from what we're used to seeing you in.
1: Oh yes, it's very different. I finally got my act action role that I've been dreaming of for so long, and in a movie that is with the ultimate action star, Jason Statham. There's no one better than him in the action space, so it was a dream come true. Um, and very British, I was playing my <laughs> my my role dutifully as the kind of wild card American private contractor with many skills. Um, So you will be seeing me take down some bad guys, which I'm very excited about. Anything else we should look forward to in the horizon? Well, hmm, I guess nothing I can really talk about, but I, I, well, I have, I've written a book that will be coming out in October and it is called The Christmas Witch. And it's a fairy tale about Santa Claus's long lost twin sister that ended up on the South Pole and might want to ruin Christmas once and for all. And it's for kids, um, which I think maybe will surprise a lot of people. But uh, it's it's something that I'm very passionate about and I'm just, I can't even believe it's, it's actually gonna come out in print. And it's beautifully illustrated by Julia Iredale, who's a Vancouver-based artist. And it's like a very, yeah, it's like a fairy tale that someday I intend on making into a movie. But as of now, Look out in your bookstores near you.
0: Will do. Nice one. Well, Aubrey, thank you so much for joining Girls on Film and do please come back and see us again sometime. Thank you. That was Aubrey Plaza. Finally, let's get stuck into I Blame Society, a comedy thriller about another struggling filmmaker. This time it's the underestimated Gillian who goes to murderous lengths to get her debut feature film Off the Ground. Writer-director Gillian Wallace-Holvert also stars as a semi-fictionalised version of herself. We hope, at least. Here's Gillian. Well, Gillian, welcome to Girls on Film. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, as soon as I saw I Blame Society, I said, we have to get this woman onto our feminist film podcast because it has a lot to say. We've just been chatting to Orby Plaza actually about the film Black Bear, which is a film within a film and a director who goes to extreme lengths. Um, Your film, I Blame Society, is of course about a female director who goes to really big lengths. Um, What was your kind of elevator pitch for I Blame Society?
2: It didn't come out of like an elevator pitched place. So I never, I never came up with like a high concept, like it's X meets X. It kind of came out of a place of, I had a few years ago made a short documentary about uh, a compliment that I had received from some friends that I would make a good murderer. So I made this little documentary where it was um, basically me Going around to people that I knew, like my mom and my grandma and my ex boyfriend and my friends, and taking them to like different murder locales, like the docks or the middle of a forest, or interviewing um, them from the back seat of a parked car and in an abandoned lot and uh, and asking them, you know, so what is it about me that we make a good murderer? This is where I would bury Stalin and murder her if I did it. Now all I have to do is roll her into the grave, cover it up, and make sure I take everything with me. It turned out well, but I just, I kind of didn't think it was enough. I didn't think it was enough of its of its own thing. It was, It was just kind of a cute idea. It kind of had like a little bit of like, I don't know, Maybe I'm lionizing the the short documentary format too much, like, you know, thinking of like, uh, you know, Night and Fog or whatever. But like, I, d- I was like, this is just, you know, like a little piece. Um, so I told some producers that I was working on another project with about that, about the film and kind of like in a derogatory way, actually, just like, you know, I'm such a maniac. Like, look what I did. But they were really intrigued by it. And I think they saw something that, I probably didn't see myself because I think I was too self-conscious about being in the documentary and felt very awkward about it. And they kind of latched onto to the imagery and they were like, it's very, it's very interesting. You know, maybe we should think about extending it into a feature and having it using the documentary as the jumping off point to change and make it kind of a, you know, hybrid narrative where it starts becoming real and it starts becoming you playing yourself and actually murdering people.
0: Well, it has quite a tonal shift at that point, doesn't it? And you know, obviously it's not a spoiler to say she starts murdering people, but I was quite shocked when it it turns, but in,
2: in an exciting way. All the best serial killers are unpredictable. They look at the criminal profile they're forming and they strike outside of it. I could unwittingly reveal too much about myself psychologically by my choice of targets. Pretty clever,
0: right? And also, I love the creative ways that your character, Jillian, is, is shown to be both starring in and, and making the film herself, which, of course, was the case for you in
2: reality. Was this challenging to present all that on screen? Challenging, but, like, definitely the core of the film, the crux of it. You know, there was really no... It was kind of the reason to make it, was to, to illustrate conceptually how it would look if somebody was making a film about themselves who didn't have too much experience with cinematography but was learning on the fly as she went along and getting better and that kind of diaristic and self-documentation approach i thought was was a compelling enough reason to kind of make it because you know there are found footage films out there but they exist very much in a world motivated, like, oh, it's a documentary crew showing up, whatever. It's much rarer to show something that's like a personal document, a personal document of an unraveling. It almost goes back to the original found footage film, the original uh, mockumentary, David Holtzman's Diary. Interesting. Now,
0: talk to me about the inspiration behind the interview scenes where she's called in to pitch for a job where they blatantly just want a woman for tokenistic reasons. I was laughing out loud a lot during those scenes. They felt like they came from a very real place. Tell me more. I mean,
2: they do. Those are all very, very documentary-esque scenes, like the reenactment in the documentary. But they're, they're my experiences. They're also, there's some sprinklings of, you know, our producers chipping in and talking about things that had happened to them as well. It builds up to like a very kind of comprehensive portrait of of experiences that I've had and that women that I've known had. The first meeting that I ever had was right out of film school. I had a meeting at a management company and the guy said the thing in the film about like, oh, you, you seem very New York. And it being this kind of strange power, power move of, of you know, saying like this meeting was of, was in Los Angeles being like, you don't belong here. You know, there's something clinging to you of this uh, horrible intellectual Babylon you, you're not assimilating, which is ridiculous. I think it was because I wore a button-down shirt and a cardigan, and that probably it's now I know that that's that's really not appropriate for what screenwriters are supposed to wear to meetings. They're supposed to show up with a beard and a baseball cap. <laughs> well, the film also says in those scenes
0: something about expectations from quote a strong female lead unquote.
2: Um, what are your feelings about that term? I think it was definitely created by a man. It's not (laughs) something that a a woman would ever use to describe a character because obviously just like the kind of maybe describing the obvious and, you know, and somewhat of a tautology as well. And I I don't think a woman who is writing about her protagonist would need to delineate the phrase in in those terms And and more troubling the term strong female lead has kind of become this descriptor for a totally unrealistic set of traits combined in a in a certain kind of body it's um that kind of description that you read all the time in screenplays like she's beautiful but she doesn't know it you know this kind of thing that a man's idea of a strong female lead is you know a woman who is suffers <laughs> Who is non-threatening, who is quote unquote likable, meaning, you know, definitely non-threatening and somewhat, somewhat irrational. It kind of to me, like one of the quintessential examples of a of a strong female lead is probably, I'm not gonna like name names, but there's a certain horror movie that came out about maybe more than 10 years ago, and the character it's her fault that the whole film happens. You know, she they're presenting her as like this girl with a lot of moxie, but really she's an asshole. She basically gets the characters into the whole situation that they're in and is responsible for them all dying one by one. But they're like, she's so tough. You know, look at her fighting off all these monsters and she just doesn't take shit from anyone. And, and I think that that's definitely like a, a male precipitated view of what strength is not taking responsibility and just uh, getting through and quote unquote winning, even at like whose expense. I think that women's ideas of strong female leads are much more nuanced and the strength is actually something that's complex and not necessarily just solely positive. I think a great example of like what a real complex, interesting female protagonist is Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. And she's, she's the real deal. That's what, that's what strength looks like. Cause strength holds, holds power, which holds abuse.
0: You know? That's a great choice. We've had Rosamund Pike on the podcast actually talking about I Care A Lot, which is another interesting example of that. Obviously your film is totally original, but in parts it records some of my favorite dark female led crime thrillers. Um, from The Last Seduction to Prevenge in particular, perhaps. Um, Are there any
2: films in that genre that have inspired you? Oh, man. Linda Fiorentino is just, wow, she's amazing. I love her. Yeah, I think that it's funny. I think the 90s was actually a great place for female characters. And and there are a lot of incredible ones written by wonderful screenwriters, you know, who were men and also a lot of women. They're just some people were just doing their best work. Like there's To Die For was definitely a big influence, and also species as well. I really, I I love the main character in species. I love her journey. It's kind of, I love that film has a certain kind of psychogeography of Los Angeles that I really love. I also love kind of the things that that film says about the construction of femininity, the way that she, as an alien, has like no idea what a woman really presents as. And so she kind of gets it just from like walking around. She's She goes downtown and she's actually in this part of town called the Quinceañera District, where people, they sell these like pretty like ball gown dresses for um, 15 year old girls here in L.A. When they turn 15, they get like a party, like a coming out party uh, in Latino communities. And she gets a Quinceañera dress and That's what she wears as her like disguise after she breaks out of the alien holding facility and they're looking for her. And I love her, her naivete as well. I love her innocent uh, approach to sexuality and and her appearance. Like I felt a lot of those things were inspiring to me in the way that I presented this character.
1: We decided to make it female so that it would be more docile and controllable. More docile and controllable. I guess you guys don't get out much. She wants to have a baby.
3: She'll kill anyone that gets in her way. I wouldn't hurt you. Yes, you would. Just don't know it yet.
0: This is great, I mean, because we talk about To Die For and The Last Seduction quite a lot, but never have we covered species, so I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm going to have to revisit it. That's brilliant. Talk to me a little bit more about the film from a feminist perspective. Was there anything else that you felt was quietly
2: groundbreaking. I feel there are a few elements,
0: but I'd like to hear from yourself on that.
2: Well, I'd be an asshole if I was like, my film is quietly groundbreaking, (laughs) but it's really nice of you to say it. Um, I think that what we thought was special about it was that people talk about the female gaze and the male gaze a lot. And I think our film is a really pure iteration of the female gaze in the sense that not only is it female co-writer and director, you know, and a lead actress who is incarnating herself in a very pure way as well. Uh, We had a female DP and she was doing all of the operating. And not only that, she's, you know, my female DP like has to act the part of myself when she's filming. Because you know she has to film it as as I would film it as my character would film it, so it's not just it, all of those layers make it extremely fe- like feminist and extremely lady focused. It's a really it's a really pure incarnation of female subjectivity. I saw on Twitter that um, you'd had some comments
0: from people who actually thought you perhaps might have done this in real life.
2: <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> Um, I mean that. Yeah, there was one angry guy who sent me a message on Facebook, and it was just it's such an interesting leap of logic. He felt that the film not only glorified violence, but was clearly some kind of confession that I obviously quote do this sick shit in real life. You sick piece of shit, and. It's interesting, um, you know, and I don't know if you saw like uh, there was a, a woman who also commented. She's like, I don't know if like John Carpenter, or David Cronenberg get this kind of stuff thrown at them. Like, you know, like I don't know if people assume the same things. I think that yes and no, you know, people have been calling horror directors perverts and psychopaths, you know, ever since, you know, the genre existed. I'm sure that John Carpenter and David Cronenberg get abused all the time. I think there is something different though about a woman making the film because it's a woman transgressing certain social norms about aren't you supposed to be squeamish about violence? Aren't you supposed to feel, you know, certain kind of shame and modesty about about portraying yourself as an quote unlikable person? I think that there probably are people out there, many of them men, who are taken aback by the way that I portray myself and seem to be reveling in my transgression and in my catharsis. And that's great. I love it.
0: (laughs) Mission accomplished. Yeah.
2: Um, Tell me, what are you working on next? Uh, I have a bunch of things that are kind of stirring around and we'll see what lands first. I'm working on pitching a TV show right now that hopefully we'll go out with like imminently. And that'll be one of the weirdest things ever. If it gets made, it'll just be, uh, that'll be quietly groundbreaking if it, if somebody actually happens to (laughs) do it, but I am also, um, I'm a baseball nut. So I've been working on a bunch of baseball projects. So I'm excited about that. You know, there hasn't Been a lot of room for women's voices in in that space, and you know, in sports, and even frustratingly, when there are films that are about um, female athletes, and you know, their stories are often told by men. And I, I don't think, I think that that sometimes I feel like something is missed there. Not that like men don't make fucking amazing movies about women and show an incredible amount of nuance. Like I'll go out there and say something. That isn't very popular. I think Lars von Trier is one of the best filmmakers in terms of portraying female characters. He totally gets the uh, socially inflicted martyrdom of being a woman. He gets it.
0: That's what I think. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, we could talk about that's a whole other thing. But Melancholia, I thought was brilliant. And I do like a lot of his work. that um, I have problems with some it. But that's a whole other episode. But thank you for that. And before you go, <laughs> we've got um, the Oscars coming up, of course. And finally,
2: more than one woman nominated for Best Director. Um, any Oscars predictions? I don't know. I don't really know what's... I don't really know it's nominated. I haven't like paid attention since I think I was talking with a friend, like the last time I really paid attention to the Oscars was when Chris Rock hosted. Oh, so that, right. was, that was a little <laughs> while ago. I think we need people like that. We need people like him hosting the Oscars. You know, he was the last fearless host really like one who really spoke truth to power. I think that, you know, the event can seem very um, self-filating in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I'm excited for everybody who's nominated and what's going to happen for their careers. And that's awesome, but it's not something I'm totally compelled by. There's something about awards too, where you feel like you kind of want to feel like there's space for everybody and like, you know, kind of creating like a a, an objective system of giving awards to something that is so subjective, which is, uh, you know, about feeling and expression. It just, it feels artificial so it's not something that that I get super involved with
0: very sensible I <laughs> expect we only pay attention because it then depends who puts their money into what and it gives opportunities but I totally agree with you often the Oscars do not reward the best films will certainly have a very subjective view hell um, but, no yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like like remember I remember the year that like so many of my favorite films came out I think it was like 2013 or 2014 it was like that was the year that under the skin and spring breakers and startup all came out the same year those were all my favorite movies of that year and they none of them got nominated for oscars and i just i think that was one of like my like totally faith-breaking moments in that
0: (laughs) that was it great choice in films may i say unsurprisingly well Gillian, we can't wait to see what you do next and thank you so much for joining girls on films talk about i blame society thank you so much anna it's been great to speak to you thank you That was Gillian Wallace Horvath. I Blame Society is available for digital download now and you can find Black Bear on digital from the 23rd of April 2021 in the UK. You can also watch my reviews of both of those films on the Film Review on the BBC iPlayer now. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film. Do follow us on social media. We love to have you with us. We give daily film recommendations and we also have a Patreon page with video content. Go to Patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast also why not pop over to the kermode on film podcast where you'll find the latest episode features myself and mark kermode we're doing a bit of armchair travel and going on holiday vicariously through the movies <music> girls on film is an hla production it's brought to you by executive producer hedda Archbold, audio producer emma butt Assistant Producers Heather Dempsey and Eliana J, and our partners for this episode, Remy Matin. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Aubrey Plaza, Gillian Wallace Horvath, and Rihanna Dillon. See you soon. Stay safe.
2: I just can't sit back and wait for permission from some guy to make a movie. You know, nobody wants you to make a movie as much as you want to make one yourself. Just make it happen.